Good morning. Thank you for being here. If you don't know me, my name is Destin Garner, the pastor of students here at Rock Point Church. And uh, talking today on Proverbs 31. So I think all the women in the audience go, great, another man talking about Proverbs 31. Wonderful. Can't, I'm so glad I'm here. I think all the guys in the audience, when I say I'm talking about Proverbs 31, they go like, oh, oh shoot, is it, is it Mother's Day? Is it Mother's Day? Did I forget? You know, right? So it's not Mother's Day. <laughs> It's not a ladies' conference, right? I'm, I'm talking about Proverbs 31. When, when Ron asked me to speak, he said, hey, I want you to, I want you to pick uh, Proverbs 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. Just, just read through those. Whatever jumps out at you, just preach that. You know, preach a whole chapter. It's fantastic, right? So I read 27. I read 28. I read 29. I read 30. I don't read 31. I know what Proverbs 31 is. Like, I don't want to touch that. I don't want to be a part of that. And so I'm just kind of, you know, reading my other, my other chapters. But but nothing's coming alive. You know, when you're reading scripture, nothing's churning, no questions are going on in my head. And so, you know, finally a couple days into it, I just go, well, like, maybe I'll read 31. And so I read 31. And then something started kind of leaping out of my chest. Some, some wheels started turning, some questions started happening. I started going and doing some research and looking into it. I'm like, oh, I'm excited now. I'm excited. I learned some things about this, and I'm thrilled to share those with you this morning. So to get us thinking about Proverbs, to get us thinking about wisdom, I want you to think about maybe the best piece of advice, the best piece of wisdom you've ever received, right? So for me, I got a couple one. One was you know, talking about like counseling or when, when you're dealing with people. The person said, this is always about that. And what they were meaning was like the presenting issue, the presenting problem. It's never really the true problem. There's always a couple layers deeper. There's always something else that's causing this, right? And I've used that and I've counseled on that a ton of times. Like I love uh, that one. Uh, when I was at a leadership conference, one of the guys said, I always don't know what I should do as a leader. Sometimes I have trouble figuring that out. He said, so I asked myself this question, what would a great leader do? And I tried to do that. And so that's something I've used a lot of times, you know. I don't know what to do in a situation. I go, what would a great leader do? And so that has been helpful to me. Some helpful marriage advice, some helpful marriage wisdom. You know, someone once told me, said, son, sometimes they don't want you to fix it. They just want you to listen. And I'm like, well, what's the point of talking then, you know? Like, I'm going to fix it, right? That's why. Anyways, another one was this. I lived with my pastor in Austin. Uh, we we love golf, and he'd go out, and he'd be shopping for golf clubs. And he'd look at a putter, and he'd like, $400. Then he'd go over here, and he'd look at the driver, and he's like, $600. I'm like, there's no way it costs that much. So I'd go behind him, and I'd look at the price tag, and the putter was only 200 And the driver was only 600 And so I was like, what, what are you doing? And he goes, son, let me tell you something. Anytime you're going to buy golf equipment, you might as well just double the price because your wife is going to spend at least that much on something she wants. And I was like, ah. Oh. So his whole life, right, he went around like looking at everything, like a double, a double price tag. Uh, we have the students, you know, they're going through college. I work in student ministry. They're getting in college. like, hey, what, what do I want to major in? What does God want for me? You know, and I ran across this piece of advice. And so I tell them this as often as I can. I say, if you graduate or the graduate with a science degree, they ask, why does it work? The graduate with an engineering degree asks, how does it work? The graduate with an accounting, a business degree asks, how much will it cost? And the graduate with a liberal arts degree asks, uh, do you want fries with that? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just alienate all my liberal. I've got a liberal arts degree. So, right. Those are some of the best pieces of advice, you know, that I may have heard. I, I want you to think about is there a, like a worst piece of advice, like the, the worst wisdom? You know, someone thought they were really helping you out and it was bad. Uh, I searched and searched. I couldn't think of one. Uh, but I do remember uh, this one young student when I was a pastor in Austin, like, you know, a couple weeks on a job. I met this kid and we're like, hey, let's go out to the, the driving range. We'll hit, some, we'll hit some range balls and we'll just talk, right? 
So he's telling me about his family, and he's like, I love my dad. My dad is so smart. My dad is so wise. I'm like, well, I got, I got to hear. Like, what, what has he told you? What is so, you know, incredible about your dad? He said, well, here's what my dad told me. He said, son, if you see a hot girl, it's not a sin. It's a sin if you look back at her. And I was like, okay, I, mean, I guess so. But then the kid goes on, and he says, so my dad tells me, son, you better make sure that first look is a long one and a good one. And I'm like, I'm like, no, that's terrible, no, like, what am I doing in youth ministry? This is bad advice, you know, we've got to recorrect those thinking, right? So we have some good advice come on us in our life, we have some bad advice, but I want you to think about the advice you would give, right? Like, if you had the ear of someone extremely important, someone really, really powerful, a mover, shaker, influencer, if you had their ear, if you had their trust, and you could give them a few pieces of advice, what would you say? What would you say? And here's what I want you to imagine, right? So the election's coming up, day after the election night, it's that morning, and they're like, you know, we've been, we've been tallying votes and electoral college stuff all night long. And this morning, here it is, we finally figured out the next president of the United States of America is, and it happens to be your son or daughter. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh boy, you know, we're in trouble, right? But imagine that. Maybe you don't have a son or a daughter, you've got a cousin, you've got a niece, you've got a nephew, you've got someone in your life. And if they were like president, if they were one of the most powerful people on the world, and you just don't have any relationship with them, you've got a familiar relationship, a tight, intimate relationship with them, what are you going to tell that person? What would you say? This is how Proverbs 31, we stumble upon it. It's a mother who's speaking words of wisdom to her son, who's a king. So let's look, Proverbs 31, verse 1. What does mom say? And so it starts and it says, the words of King Lemuel. So this is the author, the oracle that his mother taught him. Now Lemuel, this is really interesting. We got to figure out who is this guy, right? And so we look through, uh, you know, the, the history of the kings of Israel, of Judah. Eh, he's not there. Okay, so he's not one of those kings. So sometimes people think, well, maybe he's a, he's a king from a, a foreign nation. Maybe he's like kind of a convert uh, to, to Israel, a convert to Judaism, right? So he's a king of Assyria at one time, uh, an Arabic king. He's kind of come over, so we took his wisdom and put it in here. Some people, and I've read like over 20 commentaries for this, uh, there's a lot of people think that Lemuel is actually Solomon. I mean, Solomon's been an author of a lot of these proverbs, and Lemuel means belonging to God, and Solomon is dedicated to God. So, like, well, maybe there's a connection there between those two. And here's the evidence we have that this is Solomon. None. Okay? It's just simply Jewish tradition. But there's a lot, and a lot of the reading, this comes up over and over again. Maybe this is Solomon. And it's kind of cool to think about. Like, if it is him, we don't know. But if it is, man, there's some cool things. Like, his mom would be Bathsheba, and she would be the one given him this advice. So kind of interesting. Who is this guy? We're not 100% sure, but here's what his mom says and what he writes down. Let's take a look. Verse 2. She says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Look at the, the, the intimate knowledge there. She's like, my, my son who's now present, my son who was in my belly, was in my womb, my son of my vows. Like back before I was pregnant, I was vowing to God, God, if you just give me a child. So this is an impassioned plea here, right? I mean, she's really getting into it, really, you know, leveraging her relationship with her son. And here's what she says. Do not give your strength to women. Your ways to those who destroy kings. Is it not for kings, O Lemuel? Is it not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink? At least they drink and forget what they've been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. 
Give strong drink to the one who's perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth and judge rightly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And so this is Lemuel's mother, right? It's a mom. And here's what she's going to say to the king. She's going to say three things. Number one is, don't give your strength to women. Now that word strength, it also translates, it's virility or stamina. It means sexual vigor. And so what she's saying here, right off the bat, first advice to her son, the king, don't you be going having sex with all those women, okay? I mean, this is her advice. And she's not advocating for complete celibacy here. She's talking about women outside of the marriage. So maybe thinking a large harem, a large concubine or something like that, that's what she's advising against. She says, you know what? That will distract you. It'll get your mind off what you're supposed to be doing, Lemuel. And we see that with David, right? When David lets lust kind of get a hold of him, it kind of takes him down a road, and he's perverting justice, and he's bending the lines, right? And so that's interesting. What if this is Bathsheba who's writing to Solomon, her son? Wouldn't she have some great knowledge, right? So the second thing she says is, is don't get drunk on wine, right? She said, don't drink to the point of intoxication, Again, she's probably not advocating for, for no alcohol ever to be completely dry. What she is advocating for here is don't just get rip-roaring drunk. And, and she, she makes some really interesting statements here. She's like, hey, you know what? You probably need to you know, just give the drink to the poor and the needy and those who are sick so they can just forget about all their misery, right? And we're like, ah, that doesn't seem right. And it's not, right? She, she's being sarcastic here. And so I found this commentary. I think he does a great job handling this topic. And what he says is, the command to give intoxicants. To all who are dying of hunger to anesthetize them permanently is sarcastic. It's not a proposed welfare program to provide. If taken literally, her command to give intoxicants to the one who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter would be completely out of harmony with wisdom. Drowning one's sorrow in drink solves nothing. Its anesthetic effects may merely deepen the drinker's ability to face his problems. Instead, the following proverb specifically commands the king to deliver the poor from their miserable poverty. And so that's the third piece of advice. She says, open your mouth. Open your mouth for those. And what she's saying is, speak for those who can't speak for themselves. Defend the defenseless king. And so those are her three words of advice that she tells her son. Don't go having sex with a bunch of women. Don't get drunk and take care of the poor and the needy, those who can't defend themselves. And then when we go, we keep going on in the text, verse 10. But there's a shift in the text here. Right? It's not just like kind of the same repetition. And so what we see, verse 10 through 31, there's a poem that comes out. And it's an acrostic poem. So what they do is they take the first letter or, or every consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that line would start with that. So, you know, for our, it was like there would be a line that would start with A, then a line that would start with B, and a line that would start with C. And so they've done this with the Hebrew alphabet. And the reason they're doing this is this is, this is to help memory. Right? So when these people are reciting this and saying this, like, oh, how's the next line start? Oh, ABC, right? I know. And so there's this poem here. And so we, we kind of got to ask, like, there's a new structure, a new voice. Is it still Lemuel? Are these still the words of his mom? Maybe. It definitely could be. It's kind of, you know, juxtaposed there together. It fits a little awkwardly. It, it, it could be someone else. It could be an anonymous writer. And the editor of Proverbs gets this and says, this poem Boom, right here. This is where I want it to go. But regardless of who wrote it and kind of, it's in the Bible. I mean, here it is, right? The inspired word of God. It made it. And so not just anywhere, right? It's the very last piece of wisdom we get in Proverbs. 
And, and so it's kind of like the, the editor of, of Proverbs is taking all these things, putting this, he's like, this is the one I want last. I want to end it with this. I want an exclamation point with this. I want to wrap it all up. This is the climax. This is the summation of everything right here. Right? So with that in mind, let's read what it says. It kind of comes in a, in a form, uh, the themes. First, it starts talking about a woman's value. Then it talks about her activities and her praise. Let's look at the value, how valuable this person is. An excellent wife, verse 10, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Incredible value, right? Incredible value there. And the statement, what you're reading there, um, an excellent wife, who can find? The author's not going like, I've looked. They're not out there. Can't find them. Sorry, you know. No, no, no. It's not a focus on, like, the extinction of that. It's focusing on the rarity. Like a precious jewel, like a diamond or a sapphire or a ruby. Like, wow, this is incredible. This is rare and this is valuable. Right? And when you seek it, you hang on to that. And so just right off the bat, just, man, look at this value of this woman. And then so we ask, okay, well, what, what makes her that valuable? What is it that makes her that excellent woman, that, that excellent wife, right? And now here's what I want you to think. As we read this, I'm going to go through kind of verse by verse, and here's what it means. We'll kind of fly through it. Here's the filter. Here's the lens I want you questioning as I read. Is this describing a real person? Or is it fictitious? Is, is it real? Is it made up? Is, is it literal? Is it figurative? Is it a little bit of both? Is it just surface level? Or is there something deeper going on here? A meaning that the author is trying to get out. With that in mind, let's read. What are the activities that makes her valuable? Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. So right off the bat, here's what we get. This woman is a seamstress. She makes clothes. She is a fashion designer, all right? That's what the wool and flax means, okay? She's got her own clothing business, her own brand. And I love that the wool and flax, like, that kind of confused me and I didn't understand it. So I went and did a little research on it. And this is, I mean, just think about the, the, the tediousness that she has to go through to make clothes out of wool and flax. It says here, first, the wool had to be weighed. Then the wool had to be combed. And then the wool had to be washed. And after that, the flax had to be pulled out. It had to soak in the water, and then it had to dry. Pieces of bark and wood were removed. Fibers obtained were pulled by the crook to split and arrange them so that the short fibers were removed. We're not even to stitching a piece of clothing together yet, and I'm already confused, right? So this woman, she's, she knows what she's doing. She's got her own fashion design company. Verse 14, she is like the ships of merchant. She brings her food from afar. So girls not just cooking whatever's in the pantry. Hey, guys, it's left overnight. No, 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 no. She's like not just going to the market, like going and trading for exotic, exquisite spices and different things and making these just incredible, wonderful meals, right? So it's not like when we do lunch at Panda Express, that's not what it's talking about, food from afar, okay? Like when, it, when it's Taco Tuesday, that's not food from afar. When you dip your French fry in Polynesian sauce at Chick-fil-A, that's not food from afar, right? This is on a different level, a different scale that this woman's putting out in the kitchen, all right? She goes on. She rises while it is yet night, and she provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Already runs a textile business, bringing this food from afar. Now she's getting up before the sunrise to do what? To make breakfast for her entire house and the help. 
okay? Usually at the help, supposed to make breakfast. She's like, no, I got this. Take off, you know. Every day, waking up before the sun, making breakfast for the entire household and her staff. Just incredible, okay? Uh, 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. So she has the money to purchase land because she's got this booming, awesome clothing business, okay? Then she takes that. Now she's, like, reinvesting it, going out. She's doing, like, research on the land, analysis on the land. Is the soil good? Yep, it's great. And then she purchases it, goes through that whole process. And then she's, like, instructing people how to plant grapes and how to grow a vineyard. Like, really? Okay, here she is, planting a vineyard. Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength. She makes her arms strong. And, and that addresses herself as strength. The way that's translated, or a little translation would be to bind up her loins. Okay? And so those days, they wore loincloths, you know, long garments, and it's, it's kind of hard to run. I mean, ladies, you know what that's like. And guys, when you get out of the shower and do the towel thing, you kind of get it too, okay? So if you're wanting to do something like physical and active and it requires some strength, you've got to bind up your loins. You've got to take the loincloth, and they kind of lift it up, and they tuck it up under their belt, the bottom of it, Right? So now we got full range of motion, you know, we got, we got knee movement. And so what it's implying here is that she's, she's about to do something difficult. She's about to do something heroic. She's about to do something that needs some activity, right? She's providing uh, for her family. So she dresses herself with strength, binds the Lord. She makes her arms strong. It's like we would say she rolls up her sleeves, right? You're rolling up your sleeve. You, you get the resolve. You get the commitment like, I'm going to do this. Just incredible, incredible woman. We go on. Verse 18. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. Yes, her merchandise is profitable. So one wool garment, and that's what she's making, right, um, would cost you about one month to three months wages to purchase, like a nice wool garment. So every time she's selling something, boom, there's like three months of somebody else's wages in her pocketbook. So she is very profitable. She's doing really well. And the phrase that the lamp goes out at night, a lot of people say, oh, man, just she works all night long, you know, burning the midnight oil, if you will. That's probably not right, okay, because she's getting up before the sunrise, and so she's working all night long. So two, That's not really wise, right, to get two hours of sleep a night. And if you stick, like, like, true to the metaphor, it says, like, her lamp never goes out. Does that mean this woman, like, never sleeps, ever, just stays up all night long? She's like a, you know, cyborg or something like that. And so what, what it means that her lamp never goes out, it's enduring prosperity, Enduring prosperity, talking about the wealth she has. Verse 19, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and she reaches out her hand to the needy. So the hands that grasp to produce now open wide to provide. And because she's been successful, because she's made this money, because of all that, now she can be generous. And she does. She, she opens her hands. Sometimes that may mean giving something to somebody, or it actually may mean inviting someone in to come be a part. Is she housing the homeless? Is she feeding the hungry? And this woman just goes on and on, right? Here we go, verse 19. Oh, we already did that one. 21. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed in scarlet. So she's not afraid about the future. She's like, bring it on. 22. She makes bed coverings for herself, and she clothes herself in fine linen and purple. So she's also making bed coverings, just like with her spare time, you know, that she has from the vineyard and the textile business and the exotic meals. She's making bed coverings. 23. Her husband is known at the city gates when he sits among the elders of the land. And so the city gate, that's like, that's like town hall, that's city hall. This is where the important people go to make important decisions, to do important things. And her husband's known there. 
He's got respect. He's got influence. Because of who she is, he's among the elders of the city. He's known. He's respected. Verse 24, she makes linen garments. Again, going back to her, her business she delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Which means she doesn't worry about the future. She's not anxious. She's not nervous. She's never fearful. She laughs at the future. Ha <laughs> ha, bring it on. Whatever you have, I'm good. I'm taken care of. We're protected. Verse 26, now she opens her mouth with wisdom and teaching of kindness is on her tongue. No sarcasm. No complaining. No negative remarks, just wisdom and kindness, wisdom and kindness, wisdom and kindness coming out all the time with this woman. Verse 27, she looks well as to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She's not lazy. She's not going to spa and kicking her feet. She's in the business of her house, right? She, she all about, she knows all the different people, all the family members, what's going on. She's at every ball game. She's doing every homework assignment. She knows the hopes, the joys, the fears, the sadness, the pain points of all the members of her household, right? This is her activities. And you're like, yeah, that's, that's pretty valuable. So what do you do with that, okay? Well, C.S. Lewis says this, if we do not admire what is praiseworthy, we are stupid, insensible, and great losers, right? Just deep theology there from C.S. Lewis. And so the author turns in verse 28, and they just give this lady some praise. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also. And he praises her, and many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands. Let her works praise her in the gates. So now to top it all off, her children just singing praises to her. Her husband lavishing on praise. The whole flipping town is just praising this woman. And she's incredible. She's amazing. All right, so let's just recap. Who is this woman? Here's a summary. She sews ornate clothing for her family from thread and fabric. She herself is spun. She cooks splendid exotic meals. She wakes up early. She makes breakfast for the whole house and her family. She runs a substantial textile business. She buys property. She starts a vineyard. She helps out the poor. She cares for the needy. She makes bed coverings for crying out loud. She speaks nothing but wisdom and kindness. She never worries. She's never fearful about what the future holds. Her husband and her children lavish praise upon her. Now let's just get a little bit honest. Anybody here say, like, I kind of hate that woman. Yeah, I mean, this is ridiculous, right? And so, I mean, I, 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 I'm not a woman, right? I don't really compare myself to her, but I, I had a little, like, Mr. Mommy moment the other day. So I, I got a five-month-old, and uh, Jamie works at Grapevine Faith Christian School. She teaches economics in the morning. So in the morning, I get to stay home. Uh, I get to play Mr. Mom, work from there, and take care of Bryce, right? And so here's how great of a Mr. Mom I am. Um, I need to have coffee with someone in the church. We're going to go out, and I just need to talk to them about X, Y, Z. And so I say, hey, you know, let's get together. And they're like, yeah. And they're like, what about 8 a.m. on, you know, Wednesday? I'm like, that's fantastic. I'm like, no, it's not fantastic. I have a daughter. I completely forgot I even had a daughter, right? I'm just putting meetings on top of my time. I'm supposed to be at home. So that's that. And now I'm scrambling. It's last minute. I'm like, I need to find someone to watch my daughter. I can't cancel on his family. And so, like, I'm calling a friend. I'm like, hey, friend, please come over, you know. So she comes over. She's there. And then I'm scrambling to diapers and bottles and talk to the sitter and this, that, and the other. And, like, I'm 10 minutes late to the meeting that I called, that I set up. And I'm like, don't worry about it. Come on in, you know. So we go to Starbucks, and I'm like, order whatever you want. It's, just, it's on me, okay. We order muffins and venties and everything like that. And then I go to pay. 
I forgot my wallet. <laughs> I was like, hey, you mind picking this up? <laughs> you know, feel like an idiot, okay? Um, so we're sitting down at the table. I'm trying to talk to him. You know, the, the sitter, my friend, she, she's, she's got to go in an hour. I've got an hour. So all I'm doing is like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Like totally disrespecting them. I'm just looking at my phone the whole time, like texting the sitter on the table. Please stay, please stay, you know. And so I get home, and it's just like I felt like I disrespected my friend. I disrespected the people. I made them pay for my coffee, and I ordered a big drink that day. And um, so Jamie came home, and she's like, you know, how's everything? I'm just like, I'm a terrible mom, you know. I'll never be a good Proverbs 31 woman. You know, I just, I didn't say that, right? But, but I, again, when you, when you read this passage, when you see what this woman's doing, you're like, really? Really? And so let's go back to the question. Is this a real person? Is this figurative? Could someone really do this? Is there something more going on in this text? And the answer is yes, there is. I think there's a couple of layers that we have to understand about this text to truly get the right meaning, get the right interpretation of what is true wisdom. And so one commentator, I think he did a better job than anyone else, is I just want to read you his words about what he says about uh, the layers of this text. Traditionally, it has been interpreted as a paradigm for godly women. And while that is valid, in part, there is so much more here. The poem captures all the themes of wisdom that have been presented in the book and arranges them in this portrait of the ideal woman. Any careful reading of this passage, you would have to conclude that if it were merely a paradigm for women of what it portrays would be well out of reach. She's a wealthy aristocrat who runs an estate with servants and conducts business affairs of real estate. She has vineyards and merchandising. She also takes care of the domestic matters and is involved with charity. Moreover, it says nothing about the woman's personal relationship with her husband, her intellectual and emotional and religious activities. In general, it appears that the Proverbs 31 woman is a symbol of all that wisdom represents. The poem then plays an important part in the personification of wisdom so common in the ancient Near East. But rather than deify wisdom, as other ancient Near East cultures did, Proverbs simply describes wisdom as the ideal woman. The poem certainly presents a pattern for women to follow, but it also presents a pattern for men to follow as well. And for this is the message of the books in Proverbs in summary. In conclusion, this valiant wife has been canonized as a role model for all time. Wise daughters aspire to be like her. Wise men seek to marry her. And all wise people aim to incarnate the wisdom she embodies. Each in his own sphere of activity, one should avoid emphasizing one of these applications at the expense of the other. Is she a real person? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe the author really did have someone in mind. Is it also the personification of Lady Wisdom? Yes, it is. And so we look at this, and so we go, okay, maybe it's a real person, but this is what this is like. This is wisdom. This is the end of Proverbs. This is the culmination. This is the climax. This is the exclamation point. Is this really what it means to be a man, to be a woman of wisdom, a man or a woman of valor? I have to do all this? Is this really what it's talking about? Is this what the Bible's teaching me? And so I thought, why don't we just go online? Let's see what, you know, everybody's saying out there. So go to Google and type in how to be a Proverbs 31 woman, okay? And I didn't dig like 10, 12 pages deep for this. These are like the first two, three things that popped up. And I ignored all the stuff by men because I feel like we were just biased in this, right? And so I pulled some stuff from ladies. Answering the question, is this what it really means to be a man or woman of virtue? Is this how we be a Proverbs 31 woman? Here's what one lady on the internet says. 
A virtuous woman must prepare healthy food for her family. So all you women out there doing Easy Mac for dinner, she's saying you're not a woman of virtue, okay? A virtuous woman is careful to purchase quality items which her family needs. A virtuous woman sings praise to God and does not grumble while completing her task, right? How great is our God. Boy, this toilet's dirty. How great. How do you miss is our, I mean, really? Okay. But this is what's out there. Top on the internet. This is how to be a Proverbs 31 woman, right? A lot of people reading this. Here, here's another woman. Here's what she says. Uh, God tells us, ladies, um, to be well-dressed, to be a virtuous woman, to present our success that we have made for ourselves. And some of y'all be like, that's okay. Goodbye, Old Navy. Hello, Sex Fifth Ave. You know, and just like, I can do that. Here's also what she says. To be a virtuous woman, to be an excellent wife, God calls us to wake up before dawn. Any of you waking up after 7 a.m.? You're not a noble woman. You're not a virtuous wife, according to her. God calls us to work hard, to earn an income and help our family. All you stay-at-home moms, sorry. She says you're not a virtuous woman. Then I go find a guy, okay? I go find a scholar, PhD, he's got a commentary. Here's what he says. My wife, is, that's how I think he talks, you know. Ma is an example. But she's an example of the perfect wife, the virtuous woman, because she buys groceries. But she always takes the time to go through the paper and clip all the coupons. And she's taught our daughters how to clip those coupons and get the best deals. I know they'll make excellent wives as well. And I'm like, really? Who gave that guy his PhD? And is this what scripture is teaching us? To be an excellent woman, to be a man of virtue, a woman of valor. We got to stay at home, dress nice, and save 17 cents on cantaloupe? Is that what it comes down to? No. That's such a misinterpretation, right? I think people have gotten so distracted by the details of this text, they're missing the point entirely, right? They're looking at all this activity, and maybe, I mean, do I have to own a business? Do I have to wake up before sunrise? Really, you know, you know meals from afar? I think they're totally missing it. And so here's what I want to help us do. What is the true wisdom the author's trying to say there? And I think if we do this, if we make a comparison, kind of like a Venn diagram, I think we'll see in the middle the similarities, and that's where the true wisdom is. Now that term, an excellent wife, the Hebrew is estahayel, okay, estahayel. That term is only used to describe one other person in the entire scripture. It's used right there, Proverbs 31, to describe that woman, and it's used one other time to describe Ruth. Now think about Ruth, right? Ruth was a Moabite. She was a pagan. She was a foreigner. Naomi, her husband, they go to Moab because of the Bethlehem. It's famine. There's nothing there. There's no food. So they leave. They take their two sons. They're here in Moab. And then in Moab, Elimelech, uh, he dies. Naomi's husband, he's dead. And the two sons marry. They marry Orpah and they marry Ruth. And, and, and so not long after that, unfortunately, those two, the sons die. Okay? So it's Naomi and, and two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And so finally, Bethlehem is getting better. There's some food back there. And Naomi's like, I'm going to go back to my land. You girls can stay here. Your husbands have died, my sons. You just go on. I'm a bitter old woman. I'm out of here. And so Orpah goes, are you sure? And Naomi's like, yes. She goes, okay, bye. And then Ruth says one of the most powerful things I've ever read in Scripture. Listen to this. She tells Naomi, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I'll lodge. 
Your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And so here they go. Two single ladies, one old, one bitter, one a foreigner who come back to Bethlehem. They have no money, right? They're poor as all get out. They have no husbands. And I don't even know if Naomi can work, right? And so what you see in the text is here's Ruth. She's just a scavenger. She's just a bum. She's a beggar. There's a rule at that time about gleaning that when you'd harvest the fields, whatever, like, you know, would drop on the ground, don't bend down to pick it up. Just let them, you know, the beggars, the poor people come by and get it. And this is Ruth every day, picking up the crumbs, picking up the scraps. Eventually, she finds this man in Boaz, takes notice of her, and she takes notice of Boaz, and, and, and they wind up getting married. And kind of in this thing where Ruth is saying, like, hey, I'm available. I would like to marry you. Here's what Boaz says, Ruth 3.11. And now, my daughter, talking to Ruth, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, an Esther Hael. So let's start comparing Ruth and the Proverbs 31 woman. On the surface, they're nothing alike. One's married. One's widowed. One has children. One has no offspring. One owns a field. One is a field gleaner. One is a business owner. The other's a beggar. One is well-dressed. One wears work clothes. One is wealthy, and one is poor. Yet they're both given the title women of valor. Virtuous one. Why? What is it about both of these women that they both get that title? The only two in all of Scripture. I think when we find these commonalities, we'll see this is truly what wisdom is. So here's the seven commonalities I saw between Ruth and the Proverbs 31 woman. The first is this. Both are trustworthy. Both are loyal. Uh, the Proverbs 31 woman, her character is noticed by all. The heart of the husband trusts in her. Think about Ruth, how she stays with Naomi. How loyal is that? She could have just stayed. Both care for those in need. The Proverbs 31 woman opening her hand to the poor. And, and Ruth just caring for Naomi. Naomi wouldn't have been able to make it without her. Both are dedicated to their family. You know, you know, the Proverbs 31, she's super involved. She knows all that's going on. Ruth is like, I, I'm with you, Naomi. You're my mother-in-law now. I, I'm, I'm together. You know, where you go, I will go. Both are hardworking. One with her business. The other just picking scraps up out of a field, but super hardworking. Both are selfless. One's getting up before dawn to get breakfast with the whole family, putting her comfort last and the needs of others. And Naomi, she just, you know, or Ruth, she's just so selfless, you know, to stay with this old bitter woman and to pick up scraps to help keep her alive, help keep her surviving. Both spoke with wisdom and kindness. And maybe most importantly of all, both fear the Lord. And so the, the writer of Proverbs, he, he describes this idea, woman, this personification of wisdom that we can all look to, men, women, young, old, married, not married, and say, how can I be a person of wisdom and not a fool? And, and the writer here is trying to be really, really practical. They're trying not to be theoretical. They're like, you want to see it, act it out? Here it is. And so what we have here is we have a measuring stick. We have a scale that we can assess ourselves. Are we a man? Or woman of wisdom? Or are we a fool? And so let me just ask some questions. And let the Holy Spirit convict you where you need to be convicted. 
Are you a trustworthy person? Does your spouse, do your kids, does your employer, do your employees trust you? One way is a way of wisdom, the other way is a way of folly. Do you care for those in need? Man, like, like who in your circle of friends, who in your family, who, who, who needs you, your advice? Man, I look around Flower Mound, the affluence and influence we have in this community, the networking we have, man, we should be able to change the world right here at the epicenter of Flower Mound. Are you dedicated to your family? I know men in this church who have cut their salaries in half and taken multiple demotions so they could spend more time at home with their kids. You know, I talked to this one guy, he's like, my kids are, they're about to go off to college. I'll never have that back. I can kiss that VP job goodbye. I just want to be home more. And I'm not saying this is right for everybody, that everybody should do this, but I'm saying we know he's dedicated to his family. Are you hardworking? Do you really put in a full day's work? Do you slack off? Do you cut corners? Whether you're at home or on the job or volunteering, do you just get after it and pour yourself out for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the job? Are you selfless? Do you put the well-being of others before your own comfort? I just got back from a conference, and there's a guy who spoke. His name is Simon Sinek. And he was talking about just how selfish our world is. And it's hard for us to really to break out of that. And here's what he said. He said, best example is this. You walk into any bookstore, huge section called self-help. He says, I've never once seen a section called help others. He said, we have all these books. How can I lose weight? How can I find love? How can I be a better, smarter version of myself? But we don't have books to say, how can I help my neighbor live a healthier lifestyle? How can I help my coworkers achieve more? How can I help the people on my left and the right have better relationships? So are we self or selfless. One is a way of wisdom, one is a way of folly. Do you speak with kindness? Or are you sarcastic? Are you critical? Are you complaining? Are you negative? At that leadership conference, Andy Stanley spoke, and he was talking about the way people will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. You will know by their intellect, by their programming, by their church, by their marketing. No, no, no. You will know they're my disciples by their love for one another. So often, man, we're just taking verbal shots across political lines, across denominational lines, within our own church, within our own families. That's the way of the fool. The way of wisdom is to speak truth and kindness. Lastly, maybe the most important of all, maybe this is the summation of all these put together, do you fear the Lord the way you should? Have you asked for forgiveness of your sins and humbled yourself? Have you received the free gift of grace offered to you? Have you put your trust in Christ alone as Savior? Are you following him? Are you faithful to his own commands? Are you obedient to his way? Do you truly believe that God's way is the best way? Are you fearful of the Lord the way you should be? So I think it comes down to this. Being a man, being a woman of valor, of excellence, of wisdom has nothing to do with the circumstances you face, but the way you face circumstances. Whether you're raking it in or scraping to get by, you can be wise or a fool. Whether you have a wonderful family or the worst family, you can be loyal or you can abandon and neglect. Whether you're a business owner or a homemaker, you can be a hard worker or a lazy bum. You can sacrificially serve or you can be a self-serving narcissist. You can fear, follow, and have faith in God, or you can be a fake, phony Christian. 
You can talk in a way that will build people up or a way that will break people down. Being a man, being a woman of valor, of excellence, has nothing to do with the situations you go through, but everything to do with the way you go through your situations. And why is this important? Why does it matter? Why is this wisdom something we ought to attain and aspire to and grab hold of? It's because when we pursue wisdom, we pursue Christ. I mean, think to yourself, is Christ not the ultimate expression of wisdom? The ultimate expression of valor, of strength, of excellence. Who is more loyal and trustworthy than Jesus Christ? Who takes care of those in need better than Jesus? Who takes care of his own better than Jesus? Who's more selfless than Jesus? And who fears the Lord more than Jesus? When we admire the Proverbs 31 woman, when we marvel at Ruth, when we put into practice the practical wisdom of Proverbs, we become more like Christ. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this incredible passage that you've given not to just women, not to just men, to all people. God, I pray that we would put aside folly. There's so many things that the world says, this is excellent, this is praiseworthy, and this is virtuous. But God, help us look to your word, to your truth of the scripture. Help us be men and women of wisdom and not of folly. God, help us to to get through the distractions and, and the false interpretations of Proverbs 31 and to truly seek what it means to be estahayel, a virtuous man, a virtuous woman. God, that we are selfless, that we're kind, we're loving, we're loyal, and that we fear you. May we launch out of here uh, today as men and women of wisdom. Amen.